Let's bring in Naomi Zeit. She's a 19-year-old from Germany whose willingness to ask questions has earned her a spot at CPAC tomorrow. And I've got very good news for you. The world is not ending because of climate change. Climate change alarmism, a despicably anti-human ideology. Germany is 19-year-old Naomi Zeit, who has been described as the anti-Greta. And we don't think that we are uh, destroying this planet by using energy sensibly. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. That person you're seeing or you saw a moment ago is a, well, I think a now 20-year-old, Naomi Zeipt. Have I, have I pronounced it correctly, yes. Naomi? Yes, you have. Thank you so much for uh, the, the very well-done intro. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just get this right quickly. You, you, you're no longer 19, you're 20, is that right? I'm 20 now, correct. Good, good heavens. So you were, <laughs> you were born in the year 2000? Yes. And you're so smart. This is this is well, a good start. <laughs> this is a very good start, Naomi. All right, well let's let's quickly let's quickly introduce you. So you I don't even know how to describe you. You're you're a sort of an activist, a counter activist. You kind of got got thrown into the media space for basically be, being the anti Greta. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so the way it worked was in 2019, I, I started a YouTube channel, a German YouTube channel, and it was all about politics, skepticism, um, more conservative politics, I would say, and uh, maybe what, what especially the German media, mainstream media would call right wing. But I identify as a libertarian. So that is my, um, that is my, those are my main principles, uh, liberty above everything else and um and honesty so my goal was always to spread the truth on uh topics that i do my research on and especially topics that are more scientific so uh, i later became very interested in climate change obviously and then also the, the topic that is very interesting right now of course is the coronavirus so um, I always loved science. In, in middle school, I always participated in big science competitions in Germany. Mm. And so this YouTube channel was meant to be just a small political YouTube channel in Germany. And it kind of blew up a little bit over a couple of weeks. I gained around 30,000 subscribers. And then in summer, I made a video on climate change and climate change skepticism, obviously. And it was taken down immediately by YouTube. YouTube <laughs> deleted the entire video, even though I was merely asking questions. It was it did not contain any hate speech or anything. And my mother is a lawyer, and she sent a letter, strong worded letter, uh, straight to Ireland to Google headquarters. And so they uh, put the video up again. Uh, fortunately, within a deadline of I don't know something like within 24 hours. Um, and then this video became even more popular mm. and it's got, um, I think, around 200,000 views at that point. And then I was invited to Munich um, to a climate skepticism science conference for two days in November of 2019. And that's how it all started. So in the beginning, I was not focused on climate change. My my channel was more about libertarian principles and everything that I was interested in, basically related to politics. 
then so I was in Munich and I uh, was at the conference and I listened to all the scientists mm. and it was fascinating and I met Lord Christopher Monckton there for example and I um, spoke to him and we talked for two days straight basically we were just having amazing discussions and I was so fascinated by this man from the UK uh, he was so impressive as a person he has a, an amazing character and mm. he's uh, he's as smart as Einstein so um, that was amazing and then he asked me at the at the end of this whole conference, would you like to give a little speech at the end of the day? Maybe just five minutes, just give your impressions mm. because you are um, the odd one out here, the young girl from mm. from Germany and everyone else is kind of like old white men. Um, and so he, he wanted to challenge me. He wanted to see, do you have the, the courage to, to be a public speaker? And I did. So I just gave this small speech um, in German, though. Uh, at the end of the conference and then he introduced me to James Taylor who um, who is now the president of the Heartland Institute and he invited me to another climate change conference and you just showed a clip in the intro there um, just one week later in Madrid mm. and once again the same thing happened basically it was completely spontaneous in Madrid I was asked do you want to give a little speech as well and it was live and um, yeah, it was, I was very nervous, but I enjoyed it thoroughly and I um, saw this becoming maybe my thing, um, focusing on climate change, because now I was in touch with so many scientists who could really explain it to me properly and answer all my questions uh, about the climate science. And then I, I kind of blew up in the media because this, this speech in Madrid got quite a lot of views. And I'm the kind of person, uh, like I said, my highest value um, is next to freedom, honesty. And I approach everybody, uh, whether left wing, right wing, and I let everybody interview me and talk to me, even if they're from the mainstream media, and even if I know that the outcome might not be very positive, at least give me a chance to speak. Because the worst articles about me are usually the ones where the um, the journalists didn't even talk to me when they mm. didn't even interview me, which really annoys me. I want to have the chance to speak because I love speaking, public speaking and to journalists, whatever. And um, then when I, uh, yeah, then I got, um, then the Hartland Institute, um, they asked me, do you want to work to together with us um, as a freelancer and just as a representative? So. It was a complete freelancer contract. Mm. I didn't have to produce any videos for them. I didn't have to do anything for them. Basically, what they did was they made a press release so that the media could reach out, reach out to me. And uh, that was the whole idea. And then the Washington Post reached out to me. Um, and at first, they only wanted to write a very small article, nothing exciting. But they got really interested in my story because... I actually knew what I was talking about because they asked me scientific questions mm. and they challenged me and they didn't expect me to be able to answer them. And I did. And so this interview turned into a two week conversation where they would continuously ask me, can you send me sources for this claim and this claim? And so um, they actually made um, an article for the front page of the Washington Post about me. And that's when my channel really blew up and I got interview requests from all over the world and uh, that's mm. when I started producing more content in English as well because like I said at first my channel was just a German channel but I always wanted to do something more internationally because I had been 
watching YouTubers, listening to podcasts for um, now five years, maybe. I started in 2015, people like Stefan Molyneux, Jordan Peterson, Sagan of Akkad, um, Lauren Southern. I was really impressed by them and I wanted to uh, step in their footsteps. And now I do have that chance. So that's really amazing. And um, yeah, that's that's basically how I got popular, if you will. And then um, the Hatton Institute also invited me to come to CPAC, um, this big conservative um, Yeah, that was last year. Event. Yeah, no, it wasn't last year. It was uh, at the beginning of the year in February. This and, year, okay. Uh, yeah, in Washington. And I was a speaker there uh, for the, the Hatton Institute's panel, uh, which is also on my channel. And yeah, I, I got to meet so many interesting people there. And I was interviewed by Fox News, as you saw, and uh, Blaze TV. So it was really, uh, it was a very exciting time. But at the same time, something that I should maybe say is that I was very ill um, at that point in time. And uh, so I look back at those videos and I can see how terribly underweight I was and uh, terribly sick, but I still pushed through it because this was just my passion. And I, I was very worried that people would think that um, I was being abused as a puppet uh, or something, but it was not related to that at all. I really enjoyed my work and that was essentially what pushed me to um, to really recover again because I then had a surgery in, um, in March of this year. Um, it was really last minute appendix surgery. So something had been building up for months and uh, then I kind of broke down. And um, that's when I kind of um, stepped back from social media for a while. That's why I didn't see much uh, from me for a few months. And then I, uh, now I'm basically coming back and um, mm. yeah. And, and With a vengeance. Work again, yeah. Well, I mean, you've just now covered the entire interview, so we could probably end. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, there's so much content. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, you you speak like you are double your age. And I don't mean to sound patronizing, but you, you really have um, an insight that I, I think people your age just don't. I think it's wonderful. I mean, I, when I was your age, I was playing video games. Um, and and yeah, you 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 know you're challenging people to rethink their positions. Yeah, I've always been um, the odd one out, if you will. And I had some amazing friends uh, in school. Um, just maybe like two friends who were also highly intelligent. Yeah. And what we would do is we would read books and have conversations about philosophical topics and science. And then in high school, I became the one who, who got interested in politics and more conservative politics. And that was not popular at all. And even my closest friends in the end, um, I'm no longer friends with them for political reasons, mostly because um, that just didn't work out. We I try to have discussions with them because, like I said, I've, um, I, I'm so fascinated by, by having a good debate and coming mm. to different conclusions and... Um, it just didn't work for them because I started to realize that most people who have opposing views, they don't want to talk about those topics in the first place. And so we came to this agreement somehow that we can still have a friendship, we can maintain our friendship, but not talk about these topics. And that doesn't work for me because mm. if I want to stay true to myself, then I have to be able to express myself and what I'm really passionate about. And this became my full-time thing. This became everything that I was reading and, um, and writing and, and the videos I was watching and I couldn't share it with anyone because my friends didn't want to talk about it. 
And now, uh, obviously, I have friends all over the world and I have some very close friends, even in Germany, who support me, um, whatever I do. And I even have many friends on the left um, who still appreciate me as a person and who will talk to me because they knew from the start um, that my views did not align with theirs, maybe, but we can have a discussion and maybe even a civil debate together and still be friends. And I think that is so important and I wish we had more of that. Mm. And that's why I tell people, I don't want you to panic. I want you to think and mm. I don't want you to follow me unconditionally. I'm not a leader. I'm not this... Yeah, and that's why I don't want to be the anti-Greta either, because I don't want to be a leader, a poster girl for the right. I want to be maybe an inspiration. Uh, I want to share my research and then ask people, can you please continue to do your own research and come to your own conclusions? And then maybe if you have questions, you can ask me again and we can have a discussion about that and we can share our research and come to the bigger truth, essentially. We can only find the truth if we allow people to talk to each other again. And that is the main problem that I see right now. It's not climate change, it's not corona, it's not um, abortion. Those topics are just the scapegoats almost. What is really missing is freedom of speech and freedom to debate and especially the, um, the willingness of people to debate. People have to be brave enough to um, to engage with each other again and to have conversations. It doesn't have to always be uh, a fight, an, an argument in a bad way. You can have a positive argument. Tell me how you grew up. Uh, I'm curious. I mean, for somebody your age to, to think the way you do, uh, something must have sparked you or your interest. So tell me, tell me how you grew up. Tell me about your school you went to and... Uh, what you did after school, etc. And then we'll come to the to the good stuff. My school was very normal and uh, my entire environment was very normal. Nobody in my um yeah, in my in my circumstances, uh my childhood was um had the beliefs that I have now, was a libertarian. I never even heard about libertarianism. What started it all really was the migration crisis in 2015. And I was never politically interested at all. I hated politics and I still think it's very boring because politics, parties, politicians, that's not what interests me. But then with the migration crisis, my mother, she's a single mother and I love her. She's basically my best friend in life. And um, she, uh, she, she raised me in a way that she was very... Um, she gave me opportunities to um, to embrace my freedom and to become my own per person, essentially. She never indoctrinated me. And if I had a different opinion of, from her, then I could debate her as well. So that was basically what gave me the freedom to have different opinions from other people. And she started to do her research on uh, the political discussion uh, with regards to the migration crisis, which I think was handled terribly by Angela Merkel in Germany. And then she discovered a couple of YouTubers and she is more Germany focused. So, uh, but she did find some uh, international YouTubers, for example, Stefan Molyneux, and she sent me those uh, resources and I, I started digging into it myself. And then I started reading um, about classical liberalism and Austrian economics. So I started reading the, all the 
uh, the books like from Hayek and Milton Friedman. And Ludwig and, von, von Mises as well. Yes, exactly. Yeah, she uh, gave me a book from uh, by Ludwig von Mises uh, for my birthday in 2016, I think. It was amazing. <laughs> for your birthday? Yeah. Yeah, for my birthday. And wow. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And my a book that really shaped my childhood, I would say, was Sophie's World. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's by an... Um, by an author from Norway, I think. Uh, his name is Jostein Garda. And it was a book about philosophy. So it was not, it didn't have a political, um, yeah, it was not neither left nor right. It was just a book about philosophy. And I recommend that everybody read it, even no matter how old you are. Um, yeah, mm. and it really inspired me to um, to become a questioning person, to always question everything. And like I said, the way my mother raised me as well. And yeah, then I, like I said, in high school, I um, I started talking about these topics with my friends and uh, in my classes, for example, uh, I, I was in an English advanced class and I, and the, the main topic that we had for a while was globalization. And so we talked, we had um, mock debates about feminism and um, I don't know, migration and uh, climate change as well. And so I was always the one who had the um, the position that nobody else wanted to have in those mock debates because those were my positions and I, I had arguments for, for them, uh, like anti-climate change activism, anti-feminism. And um, it annoyed many other students, I think, for a while uh, because um, I kept asking questions and mm. um, asking my teachers, why can't we have more debates about these topics? But we don't have the time and this is not important right now. This is not the focus of the lesson. Yeah, but for me, uh, I started thinking, really, I, I'm not learning anything here at school if I, we only have to focus on this um, syllabus that we're given. We're just given things that I, I've read in my school books for I don't know 10 years it doesn't mm. change um, it's just repeating the same stuff over and over again um, especially in the social sciences but I and mean that's yeah Naomi how did you <laughs> I, I'm still trying to figure out how you how you started thinking critically this is because this is what you're doing you're thinking critically which a lot of people even WH don't do I mean in school, you don't you don't question the climate change science that you get taught. You don't question uh, the gender wage gap. You don't question uh, migration. I mean, we, you said in 2015 you started thinking about this. What that you were 15 years old when that mm -hmm. when you started thinking about that. You shouldn't be thinking about that when you're 15. So this is why it's pretty incredible to hear you say these things. How what how did you come to this place where you started thinking about this stuff i already have a very open mind if you will and mm. it needs I, I only need a very small trigger to be obsessed uh, with something to be fascinated fascinated by a topic and once i started ask or being asked questions like for example um but what are the arguments for climate change activism mm. and then i started thinking Okay, I read all this stuff in my school books, but this doesn't satisfy me. Actually, how does the greenhouse gas effect actually work? How do the climate models work? Is, does, can this really have such a large, such a huge effect on on uh, the climate in the atmosphere? And uh, I had to look into it 
because I was just not satisfied with my lack of knowledge and I wanted to be able to, to have conversations with people that mm. go beyond what you read in the school books. So yeah, it, and I discovered that there are so many topics that need way more answers mm. than I thought initially. I, I think most people just take it for granted that you have your school books and you get all the answers in your school books. But once you look a little bit behind the curtain, behind those questions, behind those things that you read in your school books, there are so many unanswered questions. Mm. And it just, um, it just blew my mind that there are so many topics that we only cover very superficially. And I didn't want that for myself anymore. And so I dedicated myself to doing research on every topic that may become somewhat relevant in the political sphere. And so in 2019, that was climate change because Greta Thunberg and um, yeah. Fridays for Future became a huge deal. And so I had to ask myself, before that, I was a climate alarmist, as I, was, I, I would say. And I thought even uh, Donald Trump, at that point, I was already a Trump supporter, if you will, or uh, I'd already uh, given a speech at school about Donald Trump and why mm. I thought that he was going to win. Because I was the only one in my grade, probably my entire school, who said that he was going to win. And everybody else said, he's an idiot. And so you can't be right about this. And he won in the end. So I was right. Uh, I should have made bets against my other uh, students, <laughs> but I didn't. So... Um, yeah, that, that's, uh, but, but even I thought, okay, but he might not be right on everything, obviously, and this whole climate change thing, it's probably ridiculous that he says climate change is not real. Of course, this is real. Uh, CO2 is bad. <laughs> I heard this for years, and this is science. This is well-established science, and I'm a scientist, so I believe in climate change. Mm. And the funny thing is, I still believe in climate change. I just found out, or I just realized, the question, do you think that climate change is real, is completely ridiculous. What does that even mean? Yes, yes exactly. the climate has been changing for billions of years. But why can't people be more precise in that question? Because then you get to a point where you actually have to be a skeptic. You have to ask, is climate change anthropogenic? And is it caused by man-made um, CO2 emissions specifically? Could be anything that we're doing. But why is it CO2 emissions? And so I had to look into what, how does the greenhouse gas effect work. And I found out, first of all, the main greenhouse gas in the atmosphere is water vapor. It makes up 60% of the greenhouse gas effect. And then the rest, yes, is mostly CO2. But only a fraction of that, I think 3%, is man-made CO2. So can that really have such a detrimental effect? And uh, then I looked at the stats. So the, the IPCC was saying, um, that we are experiencing a um, substantial amount of warming now uh, that we didn't experience before 1850. That's not all before before the industrialization. That's not true. Before 1850, 1850, um, there was there were warming and cooling periods that were mm. way more severe. And um, so they saw this correlation between warming and CO2 emissions. And then they immediately jumped to the conclusion that CO2 emissions, because of the greenhouse gas effect, are causing warming that will be catastrophic in the future. And I did more research and I found out that the IPCC, that they're just working with climate models. And what that means is, so the greenhouse gas effect 
um, in the in a lab experiment, um, yes, there is such a thing as a greenhouse gas effect, and it contributes, uh, and CO2 contributes to some amount of warming, but um, that is per doubling of CO2, that is 1.5 degrees. In those climate models by the IPCC, however, they amplify this effect because mm. they say that there are positive feedback responses in the atmosphere that lead to even more warming. So this lab experiment greenhouse gas effect wouldn't be such an issue. And they even admit that. That wouldn't be an issue. But they say that there are so many other factors in the atmosphere that play into this effect that it makes the warming even worse. And so they say instead of 1.5 degrees per doubling of CO2 concentration, it leads to 4.5 roughly degrees of warming. And that is referred to as climate sensitivity. They over-exaggerate this climate sensitivity with their computer models, which you can imagine are just silly little computer games. Yes. That's how I, what I would call them. And that, to me, is not scientific at all. And then their predictions actually failed. They made a prediction that we would experience, I think, three de degrees of warming over, um, over a decade or, yeah, and that didn't happen. And so they were wrong about that. But did they adjust their models? Did they adjust the factors mm -hmm. that they used in their silly little computer games? No, mm. they're still working with the same models. Why don't they take into account all the other things, all the other factors that contribute way more to climate change? Natural factors. I think it's funny that people ask me, do you believe in climate change? But they are the ones who seem to not believe in natural climate change. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you say that. I mean, I... I once chatted to somebody from Extinction Rebellion on my show and I, I asked him, uh, what do you think is the uh, primary source of uh, uh, temperature um, adjustment on the planet? And uh, he said uh, it was CO2. And I said, you don't think the sun? And he said, no. Mm. And uh, I thought that was that was quite mind-blowing. But tell me something, Naomi. Um, ob obviously... The stuff that you're saying is precisely the opposite to what Greta is saying. Greta is saying that we're all going to die in 12 years' time or whatever. Uh, how dare we um, uh, take away her childhood? Uh, tell me something. Has your childhood been taken away from, from you? No, um, because I don't identify myself as a climate change activist or anything like that. It's It's just... She focuses on her very small bubble that she has created for herself, which is this whole climate change narrative. And that's why I say, as the anti-Greta, um, I am not the anti-Greta. I'm not all about climate change. I focus on freedom of speech and freedom of science. Mm. And I don't restrict myself to any individual topic because then I know that it would drive me crazy. And I just want to, I just want to figure out the truth and I enjoy doing my research. So um, this to me, even though, of course, I'm in a position where I feel like I'm being silenced and being deplatformed, the state media authorities mm. wanted me to take down several of my videos and I have to sue essentially the German state right now. And uh, I'm being attacked by the media. So this is something that you could say is actually taking my childhood or my youth or my young adult life away. But it's not because I don't focus on that stuff. For me, still, the truth is very liberating. And mm. doing my research on scientific topics and now with the, with the corona pandemic as well, what, what really stole my 
time or stole my, 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 my mind, my focus was the panic at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, that's when I was in hospital and when I got the surgery and they moved me from mm. the intensive care unit one day after the surgery, even though I was in, a, in an extremely critical state. I weighed 33 kilograms at... I'm sorry? Yeah. 33 kilograms is what I weighed. Good heavens. I don't know how much that is in pounds, but it's no, nothing. Well, well <laughs> yeah. I work in kilograms and as well, and that's very light. It is extremely light. It's impossible, basically, to survive uh, in that state. And I was unable to eat any anything um, for a couple of days straight because uh, because of the surgery. Um, and everything, my entire gut was destroyed. And the hospital... Honestly, they didn't really, they saved my life with surgery, but afterwards they didn't really take care of me. They should have given me, um, they should have given me um, food through, through an IV, for example, or something. They didn't because they were focusing on this pandemic, which started at that point, And they were saving hospital beds for potential COVID patients. They never came. So this panic affected me as well because I felt guilty actually for taking up space at the hospital. And I thought, what if I get this virus now? It would kill me immediately. And then even weeks after that, I was still, I was constantly wearing uh, full body clothing and mask when I was going out. And I was terrified of this whole pandemic and I didn't see a way out. And I think it's the same way with climate change. They don't see a way out. They think that the world is actually going to end in 12 years. And so I feel terribly sorry for them. And that's why I don't want to um, I don't want to shame the climate activists. I don't want to shame Greta Thunberg. I want them to open their eyes to to a different perspective. And I want them to mm. see hope again and have a more rational perspective. You, you said that you grew up in a single mom home. Mm -hmm. um, what May I ask what happened? Yeah, sure. Um, so my, uh, my father was, he, he left or my mother um, decided that their relationship didn't have a chance because he was way older and um, he he was still uh, married to a different woman and he was just not leaving her so it did work out uh, but I was I was a baby uh, at that point so I I saw him maybe once or twice and I don't have any father associations with him and I don't know what he's doing now he might be anywhere he might be dead to be honest I don't know and it doesn't affect me because I don't see him as um I don't have this family re relationship with him, but I um, was, I, I did have a father figure and I have not talked about this on my channel at all, I think, um, because this is a different story. So he was my uh, mother's ex-husband and uh, she got divorced from him and he betrayed her in many ways uh, financially and he uh, put her in huge debt and she was really struggling financially when I was younger. So uh, I did not have an easy childhood. She had to work constantly and still crying sometimes because of this man, basically. But the, the ironic thing is she still, she was dependent on him because he had ruined her. And so, mm. so she had to still work in his law firm. And when I was a baby, she, um, she needed help somehow, someone taking care of me. And I don't know how exactly it happened, but he became my father figure for mm. 10 years of my life. And that was very destructive because this man is a psychopath. I know that for sure, basically. And I thought for 10 years that he was my 
father that he was taking care of me, who was raising me like a princess, but just to mm. separate me from my mom. That was his whole goal. And I realized that when I was almost 10 years old and uh, there, there was a big lawsuit against him then. And uh, I, I finally, I, I saw his mask slip away. And I saw this, the psychopath that he was and that my mother kept telling me he was. And so, uh, yeah, that's basically the story with that. Yeah, so I mean, your story is certainly um, a little bit tougher than uh, than Greta's. Who, who, who? And I'm sorry to make the comparison, but there is there is criticism in the media that's leveled at you. You know, saying that you know you you're like a, a rich little white girl, and so it's easy for you to to make the comments that you do. But I mean, your story actually is a is a, a lot harder than than Greta's. Um, it, it's quite the reverse, actually, to what to what the mainstream narrative might be saying. And following on from that, you kind of got picked up in sort of European and American media, um, particularly in your climate views, your climate change views. And uh, your message was, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was, guys, don't be scared. We're not all going to die in a few years' time. Have I got it right? Yeah. I don't want you to panic. I want you to think. Because that's Mm. what Greta said. She said, I want you to panic. It was a huge speech and went Mm. viral. And I thought, that is not a positive message. And I thought, why is this going viral? Why is this promoted as a positive thing? Because she's promoting some kind of positive change. That is not positive change. That is fear-mongering. And then something strange happened. Um, this weird pandemic hit uh, yeah. pretty much towards the beginning of this year and the whole world turned on its head. And uh, although I didn't show any clips of you speaking about COVID, you've been quite outspoken in this particular area. What What is it that you've been, that you've been saying? So I, at first... Same with the with climate change, same with the corona pandemic. I thought at first, maybe this time they are not lying to us. Maybe this time I should be scared. And I was scared. And then after a while, I just, um, because I was already in touch with several other influencers, uh, people who are doing their research on those topics, scientists, mm. doctors. Um, I started looking into this coronavirus thing as well, because I thought, I need to I need to figure out what this is all about. I am interested in science and I, I want to understand it at least. How dangerous is this virus? How does it work? And I came to the conclusion through my research that it's actually not a, a viral pandemic. It's a test epidemic. It's a problem because we are testing so many people. And what does a positive test even mean? Let's say a positive test means nothing it doesn't detect an actual virus then this whole thing is fake so i had to look at the tests and how they work and i gave a speech about it last week in berlin and it went viral in germany it's at um almost four hundred thousand views now i think and um i what i found out is that so basically i can tell you the story uh of the I called it the Corona fairy tale, and I will probably upload it in a couple of days. The whole speech in English, uh, with English synchronization as well. Um, on the 30th of December 2019, the Oculus Li Wenliang found seven 
positive SARS patients in his clinic, but that was just based on symptoms. There was no test at that point in time. But of course, people were, were terrified because, or he was scared or he was concerned because of the SARS pandemic that we had in 2003. Mm. And the day after that, the government immediately sent out a team of epidemiologists and virologists um, to inspect the situation because they were so terrified. So we're talking about seven patients in a country that has over a billion people. That's incredible. And then on the 1st of January, so we're talking about a time span of three days, Professor Dostin, um, German uh, doctor, um, very, yeah, who's, who is, he was the developer of the PCR test for the coronavirus. He started producing um, SARS viruses for his, for his primers for the test. So he developed the test just three days after the first social media reports came out. And you can see in his publication, his study on the, uh, the PCR test, the publication of the PCR test, it says explicitly that the test is merely based on social media reports, no clinical, no, no clinical data. And it also explicitly says that the virus was not isolated. So there's no virus isolate that determines how the, the test was developed. And then one month later in February, um, the first publication came out on uh, the genome sequence. So they had to, of course, construct the whole virus, see, see it in its individual parts so they can see what they're actually dealing with. How does that work? So what you might think is the best idea is a virus isolate. And that means you, um, yeah, you have your, your sample, your saliva sample, for example, and then you find it. That's how, how you imagine it would be. Mm. You see it under the microscope. Oh, there's the whole virus. Let's take it out and let's inspect it and uh, then write a publication about it. That's not how they did it. There is no proper isolate. What they did instead is they took a sample uh, from, uh, from a lung secretion from a patient and then it's full of RNA. And I, I asked you to uh, maybe pull up uh, two photos or one image, actually. Maybe you can pull it up, pull it up now. It's, um, uh, it's a photo of building bricks. There we go. Yeah. It's on the screen. Yeah. So we've got this huge pool of building bricks. So now imagine that this pool of building bricks is the sample. And the building bricks are the RNA that you have in this sample. And the DAC is the virus. And what we do now is, or what the scientists did, is they took all the little fragments of RNA and now they said, okay, let's rule out all the, the, the RNA fragments that do not, that belong to uh, the human body because we don't want to construct, or we, would, we don't want to take out something um, that is already yeah, endogenous, that belongs to the human body, that is obviously not the virus. So let's th say they took out all the, the green building bricks. So now they have this pool of non-green building bricks. That is the RNA that they said is, okay, this has to be viral material, obviously. So they constructed the virus duck with this viral material. Now, let me explain this because this is very important to understand. Those fragments of RNA were about 25 to 150 nucleotides long. The whole virus, however, the duck that we are making is 30,000 nucleotides long. So they had tiny fragments and they built their virus with a computer model. They didn't take out the entire string of RNA. 
they didn't take out this entire virus. They took out tiny fragments and then they had a blueprint. And this blueprint is just a harmless bat virus. And that's the, the, the duck, essentially. They had this blueprint for the duck and they built their duck um, after this bat virus blueprint. And then they didn't even find enough RNA to build the duck. And then in their computer model, they just added those um, missing pieces um, and said, okay, that we found enough RNA to make the duck. We found enough RNA that this could be the virus. And so basically the virus is just what they constructed with computer models um, by using countless building bricks. It's not, they did not take out the entire RNA of a virus and saw it under a microscope. It is not a proper isolate. They found tiny, tiny fragments and built their own virus. And what you, the big problem with this is that they did not perform any control experiments. There's so much RNA in this pool of building bricks that you just saw. And what if much of the RNA that you saw there is not actually viral material? It might just be from microbes that are not part of your human body, so they didn't rule them out. But it could be just RNA from, from, yeah, from microbes. And um, the computer does not scan them as uh, human material. So they, what's possible is that they took RNA material that belongs to microbes, but not a virus. And then they constructed a virus, a hypothetical virus with this RNA that does not belong to it. So what is very possible is that when the PCR test scans for the virus in your body, what it detects is microbe RNA, RNA that belongs to you, that is not harmful at all. And we can go a step further, and I also explained the, the entire PCR method in, uh, in my speech. The PCR method is not binary. It does not say positive or negative. What it does is it amplifies all of this RNA material that um, they say is viral, allegedly. And they amplify it so many times that they see it under a microscope. And so the idea is that um, if you have viral material in the first place, then after a couple of cycles of amplifying it, of multiplying it, we'll at some point see it under the microscope because if there's no virus in the first place, then you're never going to see it even after multiplying it. And when do you, where is the cutoff though? When do you stop multiplying it? When is it enough? And so it's kind of arbitrary and they say it's around 37. But what if you do more cycles? What if you multiply the, the RNA material even more? The interesting thing is at about, about 40 cycles, everybody tests positive. What does that tell us? It tells us that initially all of us have a small amount of this RNA in us. And some have more, some people have more, some people, people have less. And maybe the people who have more actually just have this RNA material because for example, maybe they were in a situation of stress. Maybe they have a simple flu. Maybe they have just their immune system is impaired. And so their body produces more of this um, this RNA material that might be somehow disease related, but it's mm. not a harmful virus. And that's what the test detects. Uh, and we could figure that out if we performed the control experiments. But so are you, are, you, are you saying that the PCR tests are too sensitive then? Um, no, because the, the test is just meant for multiplying. It is not actually test the PCR method. You have to call it a method. It's not meant to test for something and say it's positive or negative. It's just meant to multiply RNA material. And even the, the inventor of the PCR method, his name is Kerry Mullis, and he died last year. When his method 
he got the Nobel Prize for it. And when his method was first used for testing, virus testing, it was used for the HIV virus. And he said, you're abusing my, my method. This is not meant to, to test anything. It's just meant to multiply RNA material. And if you multiply it often enough, all you know is that you have a lot of something in your body. You have something and you multiplied it. It doesn't tell you anything about the nature of what you were multiplying. That's so he said that the inventor of the PCR method said that it's a very arbitrary method. And every time I approached scientists or, or doctors who are, let's say, Corona believers um, and and told them about this, they were they, they didn't have much to say other than but that's that's the methods we're using. Mm. And it it's the same with the climate scientists. They tell me, yeah, but computer models are what we're using. Yeah, isn't that funny, Naomi? There seems to be yeah. there seems to be a very uh, smooth parallel between climate uh, change alarmism and uh, and this pandemic. They both work on computer models. Yes, exactly. It's they are both the same story. They are both the same fairy tale. One is just an extension of the other. They even try to put them in the same basket and mix them somehow at, at some points. On, uh, they relate them to each other, how climate change affects the coronavirus and the other way around. But both are just meant to spread panic, to spread fear and to control people. Because fearful people are puppets and they, mm. um, they, will, they will even snitch on their neighbors if they're not wearing a mask. They will isolate yes. themselves from their friends. And that's what I experienced. People wanted to isolate themselves from me. They didn't want to have anything to do with me. They blocked me on social media. People who used to be my friends and family members because they thought I wanted to destroy the planet and harm people's health and kill granny and kill granny yeah um so my grandmother is a huge supporter of me and she might be watching this right now so if she is hello i love you (laughs) hello granny (laughs) um in afrikaans uh we say omar what is what is granny in in german yeah actually we also say omar uh but for some reason i don't know why uh, this is nobody says this, but I call her Eni. I call my <laughs> grandpa Eti, and I call her Eni. Yeah. So going but in back, Germany usually will say Oma. Oma. Okay. Well, that's very close. Um, okay. So going back to what you were saying, it. I don't want to say this out loud because I'm scared YouTube is going to take down the video. But is it possible? Is it possible, Naomi, that that the disease doesn't exist? Yeah. And I know that you really, they are, the censorship is the worst right now. And they are deleting channels everywhere. It's a tough place to be right now. YouTube is not easy. And in my live streams, I, I really, I, I'm very careful. And I uh, have to censor myself a lot. And I keep telling them, if you want to, if you want me to be open about this, then please follow me on my other platforms. For example, for my German followers, I am on Telegram. Um, where I can, which is completely free speech, and I will have to think of some uh, other ways to distribute my message. And um, yeah, I'm heavily shadow banned on my channel as well. After mm. I, I blew up uh, and got, went viral after uh, the US, uh, after I was in the US, uh, my views went down. My subscribers stayed the same, but I didn't gain any more subscribers. Now it's going well again. But um, the the speech that I gave that went viral 
luckily it was not on my channel because I'm sure it would have been pushed out of the algorithm. Uh, some random person with no subscribers started a YouTube channel and uploaded it and then several other channels also uploaded it and that's how it went viral essentially. So I'm very glad that there are other channels who interview me and who upload my content. I'm not reliant on my own YouTube channel. But yeah, the censorship is terrifying in a way. I did have a look at that video of yours, but you know, it's pointless. It's in German. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like I said, I already translated the slides and I'm currently translating the entire mm. speech and I'm going to synchronize it so people can actually listen to it. So let me let me ask you one or two questions from the comments. Uh, uh, Ruth wants to know what what is your five year plan from now? I'm guessing that you're planning to land people on a planet on a different in a different solar system. Um, I I really don't have any plans right now. I'm just enjoying what I'm doing. I got so many speech requests and um, yeah, I want to spread spread freedom of speech again. And I need to find a different platform other than YouTube. I uh, I'm working with several other people who are working on alternative platforms yeah. themselves, um, which might be, um, yeah, which is yeah, it's so important that we find different ways to sustain ourselves, basically, because mm. um, this is my job now and I want this to stay my job. And uh, pe many people ask me, do you want to go to university? And I, I did go to university for a while and I hated it. I hated being with other students my age <laughs> and I hated just... Um, the way it's, it's very one-sided and even if I do find a university that I can um, identify with, that I like, um, it's still it's still the, the education system and I see that there are so many very difficult things, very, um, yeah, just things happening with huge repercussions and I think it's my, my duty to speak up if I know something that I can share with the world. So... I really enjoy working directly with the scientists, with the doctors, and um, I'm going to keep going uh, for now. And mm. um, yeah, right now I I live basically by, um, yeah, people give me voluntary donations. So if people want to support me, they can do so on my website. Uh, I've got everything linked there. And um, But I'm, like I said, I this is way too important to me to give it up, even though it might not be, um, sustainable long term but yeah I, I've got an identity for myself now I know that I will never struggle because I I've got a big brain <laughs> I can yeah I, I can sustain myself somehow I can work and I'm yeah, this so, is important to me right now so I mean I, I was going to ask you what what it is that you do but you've answered that but you said you were at university what were you studying uh, economics for one semester um, oh no, I, no like well I done. Said, I dropped out. Yeah, well done and dropping yeah, I out. out. Yeah, it's completely one-sided. Mm. And I found one professor at the university who had retired though, um, and he told me, you can't keep this going, you, you're going to hate it. Uh, mm. I was the last classically liberal, libertarian, somewhat not completely leftist professor at this university. Mm. And then I made the decision to drop out. And then I decided to do an online university course thing uh, in psychology. And again, uh, it was wasted a lot of money on it. It was just not interesting. And I felt like I was wasting my, my brain space on, mm. on studying for something that was so boring, that was not challenging at all. And so I was wasting, yeah, brain space and time as well. So uh, well, now I, I want to use all my time to do research on the things that are happening right now. 
Yeah, well, I mean, the, the comments have been going crazy, as you might have seen. Um, yeah. There, there have been a number of marriage proposals. So let's just nip this one in the bud, all right? You're, you're unavailable, folks. She's unavailable, right? I'm married to an ice cream machine. I always <laughs> joke about that on my live stream. I've got an ice cream machine, and uh, it, it was the best investment of my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what... What's next on your agenda? So you've 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 been focusing a lot uh, in the last couple of years on climate change, alarmism, and uh, and and realism. I'd like to say, and uh, and of course recently COVID and uh, the potentially fake pandemic that's been pushed by the WHO and governments. We don't want to potentially, allegedly, supposedly. We don't want to be censored here. <laughs> yeah, and we don't want to also. We don't want to be you know labeled tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorists yeah yeah but that's why i make sure to um before i talk about any of these topics i really do my research for months on end and uh, i that's when i start talking about these issues before i knew anything about climate change and i just had this feeling that there might be something wrong with it i didn't talk about mm. it same with the coronavirus i didn't talk about it before i really felt comfortable uh in my research yeah so now um, YouTube can tap me, can tell me to take down my videos and I can disprove them. I can tell them, look, mm. I'm just sharing studies. I'm just pointing at what I see in the science. I'm not making any unsubstantiated claims about it. Well, there's a question here uh, from somebody called The Joking Atheist. <laughs> um, given, given that uh, Naomi has some good reading into climate change um, and that meteorolog meteorological studies do show climate change, what what do you Naomi think is the greatest culprit? Um, I don't know. Um, what exactly do you mean? Well, what what is the biggest driver of climate change? I think is what the question is asking. If not if not humans, I I would say the sun actually, like you said. Mm. Um, and uh, I'm I'm currently um, working with Lord Christopher Monkton on some uh, on some research on this, and he he wrote a huge paper, which I um, I've yet to read the entire thing. But um, the main mistake they made was to not take into account the sun, but there are other factors like clouds um, as well. Clouds, and it's definitely for me, it's it's definitely not um, the human impact. Of course, mm. humans have mm. some impact because yeah, we just. We have an impact, you, yeah, cause and effect, yeah. but it's tiny in comparison to... Um, and there are also... Uh, what's also very interesting is there's something called... Um, um, there's a decadic rhythm of, uh, of ocean cycles, which also has a huge impact on the climate. Yeah. Uh, you've mentioned Lord Christopher Monkton a couple of times. Uh, you, you might know he's been on my show also. Yeah, I saw that. Mm. Very smart man. Um, and fantastically eloquent as well. Uh, all right, let's have a look here. Let's let's see if there's any more any more questions for you because we got we got like one or two minutes left. Um, so, in other words, says Christian. Oh yeah, somebody mentioned uh, volcanic activity. Yes, that also has a big impact. And uh, one of my favorite climate scientists is Richard Linson, and he talked about that. So, uh, if you want to do your research on climate change, then Richard Linson is one of one of the big ones, I would say. Um, cow farts. No, cow farts actually are negligible. <laughs> yes, uh, that's a, that's one that people talk about quite often. Uh, do you know someone called Robert Skook? Is that right? Have I pronounced it correctly? Skook? 
I don't know how to pronounce that surname. I'm I guessing don't think you, so. I, I'm guessing you don't know that person either. Um, all right. Well, let's let's come in for a landing. Uh, you, <laughs> I think you're years ahead of your time, and it's a great pleasure, Naomi, chatting to you. I I really do hope that there is a huge future for you. I think there probably is because you're you're in the right um, region. You know, you're on the right continent. Um, lots and lots of people asking questions wanting answers um and hopefully hopefully um you'll be able to persuade and influence people into rethinking their positions because there is a there is a culture war that we're that we're in the middle of and um people aren't really interested in facts have you have you found that as well yeah absolutely uh it's tragic but um something happened for example just last week i was at the gym and i was speaking i was talking to a friend of mine about this um, coronavirus thing just before my speech in Berlin and mm. uh, I just wanted to um, share the research with him and uh, see how he responds and he was really interested, he fully supports me and um, what happened then, a girl suddenly came up to us and said, can you please stop spreading right wing conspiracy theories <laughs> <laughs> and I said to her, um, I mean if you know anything about this topic, I'd really like to have a discussion with you and you can listen to it you can i was literally just talking about scientific studies this had nothing to do with conspiracy theories Mm. and she said but i don't want to listen to it i don't want to hear this yes and i said to her but that's sad that you want to live in panic essentially and not even hear Mm. the alternative the possibility that there might be a way to not be fearful why don't you want to give yourself the chance to um yeah to have hope she said, I don't, I just don't want to hear it. Just can you please just be more quiet or just not sure. say anything at all? That's sad, I think. They it want is quite to sad. be stuck in their fear. And I tweeted about it yesterday that I think it's so tragic that they would rather be stuck in their fear than be told that they have been lied to. It's also, it's also a weird uh, victimhood culture. It's this combination of victimhood and narcissism uh, that people think that they are powerful enough to destroy uh, billions of years of life mm-hmm. you know we are very insignificant in the grand scheme of things and to and to think that yeah. we are powerful enough to just dis- destroy the planet in a space of 20 years is absolutely absurd i mean it's a fairy tale you you mentioned it earlier and it's exactly that it's a fairy tale um somebody has asked a really <laughs> a really great question naomi have you met greta i have not but and I would really like to, because I, I just want to know what she's like as a girl. Because I hate how she is this huge media personality, but nobody asks who is Greta Thunberg actually as a person. And no, her documentary will, documentary will definitely not show her as a person either. Uh, they see her as Greta the climate symbol. They don't see her, see her as Greta the normal girl. Maybe she's not completely normal, but neither mm. am I. And um, But just a person. And so I would like to know what she's like. But... First of all, her people, her parents, her media people would never allow that. And she Mm. probably wouldn't want it either because those people don't want to be confronted with the truth and with an alternative. And what I can also mention is when I was uh, in the Washington Post, they tried to reach out to her. And she explicitly said, um, it says that uh, at the end of the article, that she did not want to comment on my article. Oh, wow. So there's no chance, probably. Just before you and I went live, uh, you were still driving in your car. I've got to just ask you. No, my bike, because I'm environmentally friendly. I don't even oh. have a license. Yeah. 
<laughs> oh, okay, that's <laughs> disappointing. Oh, that's disappointing. I was about to get excited that you drive a... I hate driving, actually. It's oh. funny, I, I rarely travel. Uh, I haven't traveled in, in ages apart from this uh, US business trip. And uh, apart from that, I, I'm, I'm a cyclist, basically. And I, I live in a town that is very... Um, the Green Party is the strongest party and uh, everything is green. We have got uh, so much greenery, trees everywhere. It's, it's nice, but um, yeah, I'm very out of place. Uh, but then again, not really. And I'm, I'm also, uh, I wear the same clothes all the time and I recycle my stuff, but not because I believe in this CO2 thing narrative. That's also actually, I think it's so ridiculous that there are so many Climate activists will go to Starbucks and then use their uh, paper cup and paper straw, bamboo straw. I don't go to Starbucks in the first place. And it's not a special thing. Why do they think it's so special to drink out of, out of a bamboo straw? And they have to, to flaunt it on social media, on their iPhone that is definitely not CO2 friendly or CO2 neutral. It's just <laughs> so, it's just all based on virtue signaling. Yeah. I, um, I'll add any extra information uh, that you want underneath this video. Uh, you can tell me afterwards and I'll, I'll, I'll add it there. Naomi, <laughs> it's been wonderful chatting to you. Um, I think you are fantastic. I hope that many, 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 many people in the future are going to listen to you and, uh, and be inspired by you. I think you're an inspiration. My wife said to me earlier that uh, we need more people like you and I think she's right. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. Thank you. Give my love to your wife. <laughs> I shall do so. Um, and uh, have a great, I want to say evening, evening but we're the same time zone, so it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you to everybody who has been uh, listening, for all those people who've tuned in. Thank you to those who sent contributions. Please do go and follow Naomi. I'll, uh, I've added her information under the video. I'll add whatever extra information she wants. Uh, she's worth following. Thank you, Naomi. My name is Germ. This was Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas.